0: So uh, we are in the series through Genesis quickly um, before a um, dive into the message. If you are newer and you have not gotten one of these Genesis journals, we actually have some extras. Um, we would love to give this to you as a gift. If you're a regular, we'd encourage you to maybe make a $5 donation. But if you're new and you've not got one of these, uh, we'd love to give this to you. This will be a great companion for you through the rest of our uh, Genesis series that we're in. Um, let's see... And then uh, one other quick announcement about uh, this coming Wednesday, we're doing an Ash Wednesday service, we have not done one of these since before COVID. In fact, we only did one uh, and it was right before COVID. Uh, so uh, Ash Wednesday is the beginning of the season of Lent. It's in the Christian calendar and history as a day set aside to begin the 40 days of Lent. And uh, it's a day if you've been around the city uh, or lived in a, a very Catholic area, you've seen people walking around with ash on their forehead. They're not, they are not—they didn't forget to wash their faces that morning. Um, <laughs> I literally, the first time I saw it, I, I was like, Dude, forgot to wash his face this morning. <laughs> um, then I saw a bunch of people, and then I began to see it was in the, in the image of a cross. And I was like, oh, okay. Because um, I just don't come from an Ash Wednesday tradition, but uh, it's a it's a beautiful uh, historical tradition in the Christian church uh, just to, to establish a time for uh, repentance and examination leading up to uh, Easter and the resurrection. So it's a, it's a beautiful practice. We'll be meeting at our building, the 133. That's at 133 Walnut Street. Street in Brookline Village, and uh, we'll be there at 10 a.m. or sorry, 7 a.m. on um, Wednesday. So I encourage you to come out for that maybe before you leave for work. All right. So I don't know if anybody else was this way. I loved watching uh, science shows when I was a kid. Um, I just, I, I, I couldn't get enough of them. Maybe it was because uh, I lived down a, uh, a mile long dirt road, six miles from a gas station on, on, on a, in a very rural area between two rivers on the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, and so the cable companies said, we are not going to run cable six miles down this road for 12 people. It does not make financial sense for us. Uh, and my parents weren't exactly interested in getting cable, they are just not huge television people, so uh, I had six channels as a kid, and one of them played science shows a lot, which was uh, exciting for me. One uh, show I remember, Uh, Actually, uh, when it came out, I didn't watch it a lot because I felt like it was actually over my head for a while, but it was uh, Cosmos by uh, Carl Sagan. If some of you know that name, he was a great astrophysicist. In 1980, he uh, helped release uh, and produce a television show on, um, excuse me, my iPad has decided that it's going to go to sleep every 15 seconds. So I'm going to change that setting right now. because. It's going to drive me crazy. Um, let's see, when you're looking for it, it's always hard to find, right? No pressure, thank you, yes. Um, anybody remember where that is? Which setting that's under? General maybe? Keyboard uh, date, time. I I've literally don't think I've ever changed it. I think I must have updated the software and it decided, uh, that it was going to cut off every 10 seconds. Everybody with an iPhone, tell me where it is. <laughs> Under display. OK, display and brightness. Right. Um, there it is. Yeah. Oh, it will not. Of course, it will not actually let me make that selection at this time. <laughs> it's literally not letting me change that. So that's going to be fun. Um, so we're just going to keep going on that. Um, Oh, you think it's in low power mode? Yeah, I clicked auto lock, it's not letting me actually change the selection, so you think it's on low power mode. Now where's low power mode? (laughs) Where's tech support? (laughs) Here he is. (laughs) So I'm going to continue with my introduction. I loved Cosmos, um, but if does anybody remember the opening line? No, 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 it's actually, the universe is all there ever was, ever is, or ever will be, right? Okay, I'm the only one that knows that, all right. Um, you should all watch Cosmos. Okay, sorry, Marlene really knew it. Uh, and so they actually began that, and what I didn't realize is I was watching that, of course, I mean, I, I was in a Christian family, so I, I kind of could filter that out and go, you know, I can I can still watch the science part of this, um, but what I realized is like that kind of came to sort of capture the philosophical framework of our current age. We we live in um, what would could easily be described as a uh, a naturalistic philosophical system, and I would I would argue this. It's not that it's not that if you went out and surveyed in Boston that it would be like ninety seven percent do not believe in the supernatural. I think it'd be very low maybe 15%, 20% tops, that would say they don't believe in supernatural at all. But what's happened is even people who believe in a God of some kind have functionally become philosophical naturalists. We operate as if there is no God, even if we might, in the back of our mind, hold to the idea that there is one. And the reason we do that is because it is literally the water we drink. It is the air we breathe. It is the classes we go to. It is the everyone around us. It is the media we take in. Does not give any space for the supernatural or transcendent, uh, and yet we are haunted by it. Uh, one of the greatest uh, philosophers in the last fifty years is a man named Charles Taylor, and he wrote a book called A Secular Age. And in this book, he uh, he described it as uh, this as an imminent frame. It's the frame of imminence. Whatever is in front of us is what we believe in. If it's not in front of us, we don't believe it's real, or at least it doesn't inform us. And this leads to to a weird sense that people have of being what I would describe as haunted by transcendence. So people long today to go to experience incredible experience. They go to an art gallery, for example, and they take in some beautiful scene or beautiful painting and they can appreciate the brushstrokes and the coloration and the imagery and all of that. And there's something that stirs in them, weirdly, that goes beyond it, but there's no object for it. They are haunted by the idea that this painting is more than just some ink and whatever, on a, on a canvas, that there is something transcendent calling us. We we experience it in sunset, sunrises, uh, Gen Z in particular, you love to travel. Why do you love to travel? Because you love the transcendence of a beautiful new space, right? Of being in a place, and uh, and, and now it's the per, about that transcendent relationship or that transcendent moment that we all search for and look for. And what I would argue is that well, before we get to what, how this text answers that, this lack of transcendence has, has built out into us in a form of cynicism. Cynicism sees through everything, right? We, we doubt everything. We, we, uh, as soon as something points to anything supernatural, we are cynics about it. And this is destructive. It hurts our relationships. It hurts the way we live. Uh, Truth is, cynicism is quite literally killing us. 2009 study, this is 13 years old now, uh, said that cynical people were five times more likely to suffer from depression later on in life. Uh, The Atlantic uh, put it this way, a smirking 25-year-old is at elevated risk of turning into a depressed 44-year-old. Cynicism has all kinds of health risks. And I believe cynicism exists because we have failed to acknowledge our longing and our soul for the transcendent. And I think that's part of it is because we have come to only believe what we can see, see, touch, feel, hear, measure is actually real. We, we don't know what to do with this haunting feeling in us that there's something beyond that. And in this passage we're reading today... Or I've read today, Abraham and Sarah, as we continue in our series through Genesis, um, needed their God to, to show up, to stir their hearts, to reawaken them to his transcendence. That despite the fact that he had waited 25 years to answer their prayer requests and, and, and to answer his promises to them that he would give them a son, he was, not, uh, he was not out of power or out of ability to do it. That he, in fact, was doing it according to his timing. And I think the lesson for us today, and hopefully we, we see this through this whole passage, is that I, I believe because of the culture we live in and the way we live as, as Christians uh, in a city like ours, we need to recover that sense of awe and wonder at God's transcendence. We not only need it like practically as Christians to actually live life, but we need it because it actually feeds our soul. Think about the last time you were in awe of God and how like soul satisfying that was. Um, I'm going to mention it a little bit more. I, I, it's funny. Uh, several of you have talked to me about it already, but the Asbury revival that still is continuing uh, that I highlighted last week, um, I saw an interview with the guy who was leading worship um, at the very beginning. It was just a group of like 10 or 20 students or something, and they were just kind of worshiping and praying. And he said, I was praying and I was worshiping and like, God just, Showed up, and the next thing I know, I look up, and it's 10 hours later. And the person interviewing him said, like, gosh, you've got to be exhausted. He goes, no. Like, I'm not exhausted. My heart is full. I have an energy. I have, like, he was, and and what had happened to him is his wonder and awe at God's transcendence became, uh, uh, filled that part of his soul that we all have. And so today, as we walk through this, we're going to see that God wants to awaken uh, Abraham and Sarah uh, to his transcendent presence, his promises, and his power. His presence, his promises, and his power. So God's trans- first, God's transcendent presence meets us where we are. So God showed up, right, to, you've heard the text read, but God appears to Abraham. Uh, at the Oaks of Ma- uh, Mamre, which is near, which is where, if you remember from chapter 13, he actually built an altar to the Lord there. This was his de facto home because he didn't have property in the promised land yet. Um, and so th- this area was an area of spiritual like, like significance to him. And so he settled there for a while. And he's just kind of hanging out In verse two it says he looked up he lifted his eyes and seemingly out of nowhere these these uh, three men show up and the text text doesn't like say that they appeared out of nowhere or anything but it like hints at this idea that all of a sudden they were there it was a, it, it it seems miraculous that they just dropped in all of a sudden not not an ordinary moment it seemed to catch him off guard um and in that culture like seeing three people three men walking would not have caught him off guard but there was something and how they showed up that did um i don't know if that if this has ever happened to you as parents but uh you're sleeping in the middle of the night and all of a sudden you awaken and there are two eyes staring at you like six inches from your face <laughs> and you're like whoa <laughs> it's like they just appeared there you know it's like a two year your two-year-old three-year-old whatever um <laughs> it's shocking right i feel like that was abraham he's like just kind of chilling out at the, end of the day, and the day he's like Oh, my gosh, what's happening? Like, And he saw these three men. Um, and it says when he saw them, he ran. Now, at this point, Abraham's old, right? You know that. And in that culture, just like today, if you saw an old man running down the road in a suit, you would think, that's weird. It was weird for a, a patriarch like him who had lands and property and servants and all this to run anywhere, and yet he ran, which which points to this sense of urgency of something that was... It was like, this is this is different. Something's happening. He, uh, verse six, we have the word quickly again. And um, verse uh, six, he tells uh, Sarah, quick, bake these cakes. Then verse seven, again, the word ran and uh, quickly are there. This is fervent action, a haste of running. He's aware of God's presence. I do think it's interesting. Um, <clears throat> I'm not... Advocating an equivalent here, but uh, it's interesting that, that some people as soon as this revival in Asbury broke out like, or it had gone on for like three or four or five days, they were like, I'm getting in a car. I'm getting on a plane. <laughs> I'm getting there because I, I need to see this. I need to, there's an urgency there uh, to that. So Abraham seemed to feel this even though he's not clear that he understood uh, what was happening. He did treat them differently. He's very hospitable. Hopefully, you understand this culture. And even in modern world today, in that part of the world, uh, hospitality is like inherent in their culture. And like you know, there are certain certain things that are expected. If someone shows up at your door, you don't. You're not like you know, this isn't the U.S. where you're like, "What do you want?" You know, <laughs> like, "Oh, come in." You know, like we invite him in, and uh, and he actually, it's crazy what he describes here. He says, um, he says, "Let me." Uh, Get some water to clean up, so you guys can have a rest for a moment. Verse five, while I bring a quick, uh, while I bring a morsel. Now this is like a tongue in cheek because he does not bring a morsel. It's like me saying, "Hey guys, let me whip up a quick seven course meal for you, right?" Just, just, just a quick meal. Um, instead, he he, it says verse six. Uh, he, made, he has three seers of a flour, which makes like seven cakes of bread each. Uh, verse 7, he has a servant taken, and kill their chosen, uh, uh, chosen calf. This was a costly, extravagant action by Abraham. He's sensing something is happening here. He doesn't, I don't think, fully understands this as God yet, or he would probably just be on his face. Uh, but he is sensing that this, these, these guests are unusual. In verse 8, he actually stands there while they eat, which is awkward, right? I mean, you might be thinking like they're staying, you know, he's just kind of standing over them. but. But this isn't that far foreign for us. If you had like a mom or grandmother, grandfather, or somebody that like loved to cook their favorite meal and when they served it, what did they like to do? Watch everybody enjoy it, right? So Abraham had just put on the best meal he could possibly put on. And so he steps back and he's just like watching them enjoy this. Now, what do we take from this? Um, Obviously, this is God's presence among him, but um, it's interesting. The New Testament um, reminds us of how hospitable. Uh, In Hebrews 13, Abraham is actually cited for welcoming these three strange men and and, and being hospitable to them. And he challenges us in Hebrews to be hospitable as well, that we should model this. Um, But the real point here, the the main point, is that that God, and we find out this is the Lord, uh, shows up and eats with Abram in his presence with him. And this is a sign of, this is literally the only place in the Old Testament this happens, that the Lord eats a meal with human beings. And we get this to a degree even now, but back then even more so, this idea of eating with someone meant fellowship. It meant communion. It meant community. It meant you belonged with each other. This is a beautiful picture of the transcendent God meeting people relationally, meeting us relationally. And I, and I would say this: Isn't it interesting that it wasn't based on, well, you know, Abraham uh, and Sarah have a lot of faith, so I'm going to go meet them. We actually find out Sarah and Sarah's been struggling. We're not sure about Abraham because he actually doesn't say a lot in this passage. But uh, Sarah Sarah clearly does still doesn't believe the promises. She's kind of written them off. Um, and yet God and the Lord comes and eats with him. This is a picture of Jesus in the New Testament, right? The, he went and ate. Who did he eat with? He ate not just with the Pharisees and religious leaders, but he ate with tax collectors and people, sinners, right? People that were outcasts in society, people considered unclean in Jewish culture. Jesus ate with them. He communed with them. This is a God who is relational, who welcomes and loves being welcomed. And I you know I know we just read over this but this is a mystery, right? This is a mystery if we if we take this for what it really is, that God in human form chose to sit down in a in a man's tent and eat his food with him. Why I would say why on earth would God do that? But it's more why in the universe Would God want to sit and eat with a human being, a broken, sinful, selfish human being like Abraham, like you, like me? And yet that's exactly what we see in the the incarnation of God in human form in Jesus. He delights in being with you. And I think sometimes, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I just struggle to believe that. That he just wants to be with me, and he actually knows me. Now I can believe I can kind of fake him out, like some of you, you know. Like we can we can kind of put on our best face, and you know, I know I know how people are around pastors, so you know, uh, act real nice, and everything's great, and wonderful. Let's eat together, you know. But he knows. <laughs> it's not like a surprise that you're a complete wreck on the inside, you know. He knows, and he's like, let's eat, let's hang out. I want to be with you the God who who, uh, relationally comes to us. This tells us far more about God than it tells us about ourselves. It tells us the kind of God that we worship, a transcendent but infinitely imminent and present God. I love Revelation 3.20. Jesus actually, in a message to one of the churches, said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. What is he saying? Is he going to show up at your dinner table tonight? Uh, No, not exactly. But what's he symbolizing here? He's symbolizing, I will come and have fellowship with you. I will know you personally, and you will know me personally. So that's the God who, God's transcendent presence comes. And that should make us in awe of who he is and wonder at who he is. The second truth we see here is God's transcendent promises are sure. Verse 9 begins to show, uh, uh, the men begin to show Abraham that they are more than they seem. He asks, where is Sarah? Now this in of itself is a clue. Why? Well because if you remember last week in chapter 17 verse 15, uh, Sarah is not her final, her original name. What was her original name? Sarai, right? And so, um, and it wasn't like Abraham just got on his social media and blasted out, God gave my wife a new name, you know? Hashtag Sarah or something. Like, So how did these guests know? How did these three men know that his wife's name was Sarah, not Sarai. They might have heard in the region, in the area, about Abraham and his wife, Sarai, but they had not heard of Sarah. But they knew who Sarah was. And by calling her new name, it shows uh, that they know who she truly is. That she's not the old Sarai. She is Sarah who has been given a promise of a son who will come one day. This is a reminder that God knows us intimately. She wasn't even, Sarah wasn't even in the crew, right? She was in the tent. She was hiding out from these men at that moment. For some reason, we're not hundred percent sure why, but she's not in the presence of these men. Matthew six reminds us that God knows you and I intimately. He knows us personally, not just generically. He doesn't, he doesn't look down at this room right now and just see a sea of people. You know, I have, I, I'm terrible with names. Uh, sometimes I forget my own. So I, like, I don't remember everyone's name. That's why we have name tags. It's largely for me. Um, <laughs> no, so we can get to know each other. But, but God, God like, know, not only knows your name in this room. Matthew 6 says he knows the hairs on your head, right? And for some of us, that's less than others. But he knows you personally on a deep and intimate level. What kind of God is this? So God knew Sarah. He knew who she was. He knew, They knew about Sarah's doubts, disillusions and despair. But they also knew her future, that God's grace was going to work in her life, and that Sarah was going, despite her doubts, despite her struggles, was going to be an object of God's amazing grace and blessing and be a mother uh, to a multitude. If the name didn't include Abraham and in verse 10 says, The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. This is the same promise, by the way, as chapter 17. And this is when it dawns on Abraham that these are not like just regular men, that are just even special men. These are this is God. Um they just he woke wakes up to that reality. It's like meeting a celebrity and, and at first you didn't think it was or might have been but then you figure out it actually is um, if you know some of you may know the name Tony Hawk uh, it's famously happens to him maybe more than any, any celebrity out there uh, Tony Hawk is uh, famous for putting skateboarding on the on the uh, radar and as a sport and was the greatest skateboarder for many years actually has video games named after him and now he's just like a liaison around the world for the sport um, and he'll go places and people will be like You know who you look like? (laughs) You look like Tony Hawk. (laughs) And he gets he just chuckles at it now because it's so funny. And then then they figure out it is him and they're like, ah, you know, and it's like a revelation of of who he is. Um I love that that God didn't show up and just like blow the doors off Abraham. He didn't just blow Abram's tent over and be like, the Lord is here. You know, he just kind of came in very subtly, but in a very real way. Um, meeting Abram where he was to remind him that his his transcendent promises are sure. God's transcendent promises are sure. You will have a son. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you again, I've told you before. I've told you multiple times before. If you've been with us since Genesis 12, it feels like Groundhog Day, right? A little bit. I mean, the language is slightly different throughout all of them, but it's multiple times the Lord speaks to Abraham and tells him, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a great nation from you. I'm going to bless all the, uh, all the peoples of the world through your offspring, right? And he keeps reminding him, I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you and all of these great blessings and promises. And he's reminding him, it's not, it's not your plans, Abraham. It's not your agenda, your strategy. It's my promises which are your future. Over and over again through the Old Testament, it's interesting, God reminds when, when Israel uh, is finally led out of the, the land of Egypt, over and over and over again, for, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, leading right up to the last of the prophets in the Old Testament, uh, God kept telling Israel, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, right? walk with me. In other words, faith in in God's future promises of what he was doing was based on God's faithfulness to his past promises. And this is what happens to you and I. We get caught up in our imminent moment. We forget about the promises God has already fulfilled in our lives. Promises to forgive us, promises to bring us into his family, promises to give us eternal life, promises to give us his spirit, promises to give us uh, a hope and a future as part of his people and a new heavens and new earth one day. Promises that that even the gates of hell cannot separate us from his love. These promises that were given, but we forget about those. So then we live in this moment where, where it's imminent frame, right? Just what we see. And then we look at the future and we freak out. We get anxious and we're worried and we struggle and it's because we don't look back at the promises god has fulfilled so we can't look forward to the promises he will fulfill we need to be reminded of the work of god in the past so we can trust in his promises for the future again this text is such a good example this whole story is such a good example to us god doesn't come to I mean, he kind of rebukes Sarah, and we'll get to that in a moment, but one of the cool things he actually says, and even just the way the Lord says stuff like this is, is great. Um, he, he tells him that, he tells Sarah at the end, right? Like uh, um, She says, I, I did not laugh. And they said, oh, but you laughed. And we and in a year, we'll come back, and you'll have a son. His name will be Isaac. Now, the interesting thing is, what does the word Isaac mean? Laughter. God named, God named Abraham and Sarah's son, laughter. And, and so he's, it's like, God, there, there's a play on words here in the Hebrew. You, you laughed, but in a year we're going to come back. You're going to have a son named laughter. <laughs> I love that God doesn't condemn. He's not angry or wrathful at the lack of faith here. But he's reminding them of his promises. Sometimes God does that. He meets us in our tough moments. Sometimes he just blows our doors off and shows how faithful he is to answer prayer, to build his church, to advance his kingdom. I I, I talked about it last week, Asbury, and um, it's still going, eleven days. They're actually I think today's the final day. They're moving they're gonna move it off of campus today because it's it kind of disrupts the university and the and I'm going to keep accreditation at some point. Um, so they, they're going to move it off of campus. Um, but the crazy thing is uh, I found out through this week that this has spread to multiple colleges and universities around the area. Wheaton, um, Cedarville University. Uh, a friend of mine's son is a student there. They have chapel. I think it was Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. Uh, it was supposed to be an hour. It went four hours, and then the next day, hundreds of students, this is fascinating, hundreds of students left Cedarville University and went to secular colleges and universities around the area to share the gospel with other college students. Sanford University in Alabama, Birmingham, Alabama, a student was in the chapel playing the piano by himself and just worshiping, and slowly, a few students began to trickle in, and within a few hours, 200 students were there and uh it went till 2 a.m. and then it picked up the next day and it's kept going the last i've heard it's crazy like these were unplanned things but god was showing up to show how good he is that he is faithful to his promises listen i know and as a i'm a i'm a gen zer kind of or uh, sorry gen xer sorry not gen z <laughs> i wish yeah I act like a Gen Zer sometimes. I get that. Um, I'm a Gen Xer, right in the middle of Gen X, Um, and like, there's so much. uh, I get frustrated with uh, older Gen Xers and Boomers and the older, even the older generation uh, of just the 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 cynicism about Gen Gen Z. And and I and I have like even preaching at college students a few weeks ago. I just felt like some God was doing something. I am like, the Lord used this, like blow the doors off Gen Z because I think they could change the country. Listen, a lot of people don't know this. 1970, when the revival happened at Asbury and other colleges and universities around the area and around the country during that same time, it began, it was part of what was called the Jesus People Movement, which impacted tens of millions of Americans with the gospel. I'd love to see this. But I also, in the back of my mind, I'm like, what if it came to Boston? You know, there's a lovely chapel right on Boston University's campus. I can't go there, but Jesus could go there. <laughs> and he could inspire some students to just start worshiping and begin a movement. And I would love that. And I think we should be praying for that because God is a God of transcendent power, but he shows that through his promises. He is not wringing his hands over Gen Z. He's not wondering what he's going to do with the church in America. There's a lot that needs to be fixed, but he's not worried. And he's demonstrating his faithfulness even through this movement of college students. God can move without our prayers, but he chooses not to. He invites us to come to him with wonder and awe and in great faith in his promises. That brings us to the final idea here, is that God's transcendent power is not contingent on our conception. God's transcendent power is not contingent on our conception. Right after this great promise that God gives to Abram, which he says very matter-of-factly, verse 11, <laughs> I love this, verse 10, great promise. Verse 11, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. It could have just said they were old, right? but it keeps going. They were old and advanced in years. And if you were wondering, Sarah does not have her monthly cycle anymore. Why all this redundancy, right? Why, why over and over? <laughs> like, because God is reminding them that the, the power to bring about his promises is not dependent on them, it's dependent on him. His transcendent power is not limited by their conception, human weakness. The laws of physics, physiology, any of those things. So when the Lord announces the coming of birth of a son to Abraham and Sarah, Abraham literally goes speechless. It's, it's interesting. This is the one place where the Lord speaks, and Abraham just Abraham just doesn't say anything. And so uh, Sarah laughs to herself, and she says, "Verse twelve and thirteen. Am I uh, after I am worn out, and my Lord is old? Shall I have pleasure?" This sounds exactly like what the Hebrew means. I am worn out. It was used of like an old leather handbag (laughs) that he kind of threw away. It it was not an endearing term. Worn out is describing her body. And then, then, uh, I, I am old. My Lord is old. We had just heard that, right? But she wanted to make sure we heard that. She thought that as well. And then, shall I have pleasure? Are we gonna hook up again? Because <laughs> she's old, he's really old, <laughs> and likely maybe hadn't been together in a while. And she's like, Am I going to have that kind of pleasure again? Really? And the Lord calls out, said so to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Verse 13, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Why does the Lord why does God press in here? Why does the Lord want to press into that moment? rather than just ignore it and keep going because he wanted her to admit of her limited conception of the power of God. She believed, this is what it came down to. this is where you and I fall pray all the time. we believe God can only do what we think He can conceive we can conceive He can do. And that is often limited by our very imminent frame that we live by. But what does the angel of the Lord, what does the Lord say? Verse 14, such a great question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? This is a rhetorical question. Kind of like when your mom would ask you, are you going to clean up your room before you go out with your friends? The answer to that is, yes. Yes, I was. I am. The word "hard" here is not quite the way we conceive it. Actually, the ESV, if you have it, the footnote is uh, "wonderful." The word "wonderful" is anything too wonderful for the Lord. This, ver- this word is used in Job thirty-seven fourteen. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Psalm one nineteen one eighteen. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Isaiah nine six. Famous Christmas uh, text. The wonderful Counselor is the same word in the Hebrew. So we could translate it, is there anything too wonderful for God? The word is connected over and over again to God's transcendent power. Uh, Jeremiah the prophet, maybe one of the best parallel uh, statements to this. And uh, Jeremiah 32, 17 says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your orchestrated arm. Nothing is too hard for you. I'd love to say we all believe this. I'd love to tell you I believe this. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? I'd love to tell you that was my battle cry every time something comes at me. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? No. I wrestled with this this week. I was in a training a couple of training Thursday morning and Friday morning and Tyler and some of the other co-network pastors and I were in a training on like some kingdom kingdom and movement sort of uh, training stuff. And one of the things that really hit me while I was listening to this, and I'll just tell you, I'm, this is confession. I far too often let what is imminent, what's in front of me, and I would argue the spiritual kingdom of darkness that I see in this world and in our city, shape my thinking way more than the kingdom of God does. I let what's out there shape me, shape my thinking. So, I would tell you, is there anything too hard for the Lord? Absolutely not, brother or sister. The Lord's good, right? All the time, and all the time, God is good. But but what I actually do is I functionally go, well, I don't know that God could really move on the college campuses here. I mean, have you been to Harvard, MIT? Have you been to BU, Northeastern, even Boston College, which is Catholic? but. You know, one of the professors says BC stands for barely Catholic. <laughs> Can God move there? I'd love to tell you, is there anything too hard for the Lord? But I go, mm, probably not. Maybe, who knows? But I let what's out there dictate how I think about God and his power. Instead of letting God's power dictate how I think about what's out there. And I would bet that many of you are the same way. You've got a situation, a friend, a pattern in your life, a family member, a brokenness, a stronghold, bitterness, anger, whatever it might be in your life that has a spot in your heart and you are just sitting there with it because you can't answer that question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Because you've already settled it. God can't fix that. God can't work through that. God can't change that person. God can't move through my workplace. God can't help me to bring the kingdom of God into the uh, kingdom of darkness that is my workplace. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I want to challenge you to take that question this week and, and let that be on your lips when you come into uh, a discouraging moment, a, a challenging moment a, a moment where the kingdom of darkness presses in on your life is anything too hard for the Lord All of this all of this passage is ultimately comes into focus through the cross the presence of God right the relational presence of God among us with us. And listen, I I say this, Jesus' presence is no less available to you as a Christian today, a person today, than it was when Jesus physically walked with people. You can sense and know his presence because his power is available through the Spirit. He gives us great promises of dying in our place for our sins, that there's no condemnation in Christ, that you are approved today, right here, right now, despite this last week, how bad it was, you are approved and loved today as a, dearly as a beloved child of God. That he doesn't look at you with condemnation or wrath or anger or malice or disappointment. He looks at you through the light of his son and he sees you as a delightful child of his. These are promises that you and I are called to believe in and root our lives in. And to see the power of Christ to take away our sin and shame. As we close, is there an area of your life that you have shut off? That you need to ask the question again, is there anything too hard for the Lord in this area? And maybe you need some brothers and sisters here to pray with you, to encourage you, to support you, to walk alongside you as you face that. Listen, that's okay. That's normal. That's the way Christianity is designed to work. Have a spiritual family that encourages you to walk in faith in that area. There'll be somebody by the window over here, the rest of the service, to pray with you if you want prayer today. Um, if you, listen, I've, I've been stirred, been praying for renewal, revival in our church, in our city, ever since Asbury really happened. Um, tonight, Coa Forest Hills at 6 o'clock is just going to have a prayer service, a little prayer and worship service. It's going to be come and hang out as long as you can or want to and, and just join in prayer. Um, and they've invited us to come. So if you're free and you want to be a part of that tonight at 6 o'clock, let's go ahead and stand together. Moving to our time of response and communion. And as we, we prepare to take the bread and the cup, the bread symbolizing Jesus's body and the cup symbolizing his blood is, is meant to be Jesus's presence to us in a physical sense. And it, it comes with great promises. Promises looking back at your past and knowing your sins are forgiven. Knowing your f- sins of today are forgiven, your sins of tomorrow are forgiven. And then Jesus said, Take this as long as you will until I return. And so it is a forward looking meal as well to the promises of God that one day, whatever is plaguing you today, whatever disappointments and frustrations and, and sadness or brokenness, whatever is in your life today, you can believe in the promises of God that one day, all of that will pass. Every tear, every every tear from our eyes will be wiped in the presence of Jesus. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for looking at our lives and our circumstances. Eyes of faith, but with eyes of the flesh caught up with fear or anxiety or being overwhelmed or just resolving that something, someone, some situation will not change rather than trusting and praying and believing that you can do anything, that nothing is too hard for you. Stir in us a sense of and awe, your transcendent power. Bring your glorious transcendent presence among us as we take communion, as we worship. And I pray that we would press out into this week with your great promises in our hearts. In your name we pray.